Hey, you there. Did you know that you're listening to The Imposter, the podcast dedicated to making science more fun and engaging for you, the audience? All right, folks, so I'm going to keep this opening pretty brief. All I'm going to say is that this is part two of our episode on mating motivations, which is the final, final episode of our series on mating. If you haven't checked out the rest of the series, I would highly suggest that instead of logging on to your porn website this evening, hey, why not just learn about some animal porn? Actually, that sounds a lot weirder when I say it like that. Forget forget that last part. Anyway, uh, it is a good series. I would, I would say go back and listen to the other episodes. And with that, I'm going to change the subject and say I hope you enjoy. We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public, if it's something that, oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around us. It's in us. Knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know. It's about how science literature you are. Before we begin this section, I want to just clarify that I'm going to be talking specifically about same-sex mating and not so much about same-sex relationships or sexual orientation. The main reason behind that is because I think to understand sexual orientation or really relationships, you have to have a bit of self-awareness. And for most animals, at least the ones that I've read about, that self-awareness or the level that is needed for self-awareness is not really there. So that's the reason I'm not going to be going into that so much probably a really interesting philosophical debate that you could have about animals and maybe one day when the technology is there you know interesting scientific debate but we're not there yet so with that said there are many organisms found throughout the diverse habitats of this marvelous marble planet on the land air and sea large and small that have all been observed to mate with partners of the same sex from fruit flies to toads, snakes, a handful of bird species, apes and monkeys. I mean, these are just a few of the species to have been observed displaying same-sex mating behavior. But the reasons why is what's interesting, because they vary among the animals. In a 2009 review published in Trends in Ecology and Evolution and authored by Bailey and Zook, they put forth three possible explanations for same-sex mating. The first motive centers around the idea that mating with the sexual competition can foster and sustain social relationships and interactions. 
This again is probably more so the case with social, more pack-orientated animals. The example they give in the paper is, of course, with the delectably deviant male dolphins plugging each other for friendship and partnership. And that's my new tagline for life. Now, there has also been evidence of female-to-female pair bonding between a species of bird called the Laysan albatross. Now, this bird is pretty much local to Hawaii, and when the population has a decrease or a relative decrease of males, from what I've read, the females will begin to raise their young together in a partnership. So, to recap, the first theory is same-sex mating is used to strengthen social bonds. Now, the second idea that they put forth in the paper deals with the belief that mating with the same sex will either ramp up or diffuse the aggressive nature of sexual competition. So, basically, they're using same-sex mating as a tactic to further their chances of bumping uglies with the opposite sex. Take, for example, another marine species, the dark-edged splitfin, Giardinctheus multiordatis. Maybe I probably butchered that, but anyway. So, in this species of fish, the non-alpha males, and also the outranked males, might mimic female coloration in the patterns in order to avoid detection by the larger alpha males. And this actually leads to them getting porked by these larger alpha males. Now, you might be wondering, why would they mimic females in order to get sexed up by these larger males? Well, this is a distraction and or a trickery by these uh, non-alphas or beta males that then depletes the alpha male of some of their energy and resources allowing these sneaker males an extra opportunity to slyly get it in. So, you know, the idea is to tire out these larger guys and make them, you know, drain their sperm bank. And then that way, they're tired, they have to recoup, they need to get more energy, and in that time span, these beta males will come in and try and have sex with the uh, females. Now, sidebar, if you want to know more about sneaker males, I would suggest going back and listening to our two previous episodes in this series, because I did do a whole little thing about sneaker males. Just saying. Imposter. Hashtag. Okay, so, quick little recap again. The first idea was same-sex mating is used to strengthen social bonds. The second one is that same-sex mating can be used as a tactic to tire out alpha males and then have sneaker males come in and have sex with the females. Now, the third idea that they put forth in this review is that some animals might engage in same-sex mating in order to practice having sex for heterosexual encounters later on in life. And I have to say, this is not such a far-fetched idea if your high school experience, like mine, was also filled with the somewhat impressive dry-humping prowess displayed by packs of horny pubescent boys. However, if you have not had that experience, a more universal one is an example that is observed in fruit flies, Drosophila melanogaster. Now, there have been a few studies trying to understand why male flies might be mating with other males. A popular theory is that some mature males will have sex with younger males, and the younger males will allow it, 
because it can imprint on these younger ones the steps of mating behavior that they will then implement later on with female flies. But fruit flies are actually a very interesting example because like zebrafish, there is so much research done across scientific disciplines. And the reason is because they're easy to take care of, generally a fairly low cost, and they have a more relaxed ethical regulation because you're not using vertebrates. So other laboratory studies using fruit flies have manipulated different genes. And this is where I think it gets pretty cool. So genetic mutation experiments, like one specifically involving something called the genderblind or GB gene, and it was worked on by David Featherstone and Yael Grossjean. And they used uh, this test for same-sex sexual behavior. So Featherstone and Grossjean were able to switch on and off this genderblind gene, which in turn influenced the mating behavior of these fruit flies. Pretty cool. Now other studies have looked at the role genes play in regards to pheromone receptors. Pheromones being the body's physiological response to emitting and receiving signals for mating. So by targeting these pheromone receptors, some of these mutations can impact the fly's ability to recognize and identify the genders of other flies leading to sex with pretty much any fly with a hole. So you can't tell, literally you can't tell, what gender other flies are. So if you want to procreate and pass your genetic information on, you have to have sex with pretty much anything. You know, blind, blind sexing. So, anyway. As far as we know, this example of same-sex mating behavior in these fruit flies is less a product of mating preference or social benefits and more to do with physiology. Now the fruit fly is just one example, but the prevalence of same-sex mating is found throughout a diverse range of taxonomic groups and I think that that bears some weight. This is not one or two species. This is not observed just in the wild or just in captivity. It's observed in both. You know, it's not some fluke or rare occurrence. It's a significant observation that deserves recognition. Now that said, as is the case with most areas of research, there are still lots we don't understand or know, and future findings will probably reveal a more complete picture of the mechanisms and evolutionary breadcrumbs of same-sex mating. Now, as always, I would recommend that if you're interested in the subject, do some of your own research, you know? I have put up uh, links on the blog to some of the articles that I use for research for this podcast, so there's a little head start for you if you want. So, speaking of same sex, I just want to take a minute here to discuss what a biological sex could be construed as. Now, it's not just hardline conservatives, but that seems to be something that comes up a lot in their platforms, but they seem to be under the impression that sex is determined by sexual characteristics, aka genitalia. Which I would say, to be fair, that is how most of us were taught on a basic level in our science and sexual education classes. Except that's not really true either. In science class we learn that though genitalia often represents a gender, it is technically determined by the distinction between homogametic and heterogametic sexes. Or, in other words, XX chromosomes, 
homogametic or XY chromosomes, heterogametic. However, even our science class definition is too simple. The natural world is so much more complicated than a black and white definition of gender. It's more than just simply penis and vagina, and it's more variable than even XX and XY chromosomes. For some organisms, like grasshoppers for example, a male has XO chromosomes, as in only a single X chromosome. Other animals, such as reptiles and birds, have a ZW chromosomal exchange. Even more interesting is yeast, which does a little bit of everything. Yeast can reproduce either by cloning itself in a process called budding, or it can have a partnered sexual reproduction. Take another example, and this one I, I found really cool. The Neotrogla insect. Now this bug is specific to a cave in Brazil. It has been deemed to be equipped with an, quote, opposite genitalia. Now, the females have been armed with this opposite genitalia called a gynosome, and it's a penis-like appendage that's used in the same fashion as a conventional willy. The exception, though, is that once inside the male neotrogla, the males will upload their sperm, as well as some complementary nutrients, into the female. How nice is that? Now, this mating process can take up to nearly three days. So, in the case of the neotrogla, sex is defined by who has the sperm and not who has the genitalia. Now, some other species of insects, such as flatworms, are furnished with both, if you'll humor me, hot dogs and tacos, rendering them hermaphroditic. Every flatworm is equipped with sperm, so unlike neotrogla, in this case, sex is not really defined by who's got the sperm. Now this ties into current events with a story about a worm called Diploscaptor pacis. So this just made headlines in the last month or two for having its genome sequenced. And the sequencing revealed that this species of nematode has successfully remained asexual for the last 18 million years. Say what? Now in terms of an organism's history on this planet, that's not that long of a time. You know, take sharks in comparison, which have been around for 400 plus million years. However, in terms of an asexual organism specifically, which inherently sacrifices genetic diversity by using the technique of cloning, that's impressive and definitely noteworthy. There is a reason why most species are not asexual. Again, it lessens genetic diversity, which, you know, you only get from sexual reproduction from two partners. So, if you don't have genetic diversity, that makes you quite vulnerable. A handy way to think about it is, like, that friend that is always sick and your other friend that never gets sick. Aside from lifestyle factors, there's probably a genetic component to their continuously compromised and solid immune system, respectively, of course. So, if you were all clones and we all shared the same genes, then we would all be equally as susceptible or as resistant to the common cold. On a personal anecdote, I unfortunately got a first-hand account of this vulnerability when there is a species that lacks genetic diversity. In 2012, I spent a few months living on a conservation base 
and the Sien Ken Biosphere Reserve in the Yucatan Peninsula. One of the more common reef-building coral species in the area, Acropora palmata, had experienced staggering die-offs in the populations from the nefarious white band disease. Now, to give you some context, Acropora palmata was once the most common species there, one of the most common ones. But there were several causative stressors that contributed to its relative decline. And one of those was the asexual reproduction technique of this species. This means that Acropora reproduced asexually, and its offspring then had the same vulnerabilities that its parents did and generations behind it. Now, a 2011 study by Lenz, Blackburn, and Curtis estimate that there was between 90 to 95 percent of a relative decline in Acropora palmata in the Caribbean over the last few decades. I mean, that is just mind-blowing if you think about it. So again, not having genetic diversity in a population can really hinder its chances for success and survival. But on the other hand, it just gives all the more props to this nematode for surviving 18 million years like that. I mean, that is impressive. Okay, so I want to just give a very quick final nod to my overall point which, again, is in the marine world. Though clownfish are not the only species to display this physiological behavior uh, that I'm about to talk about, uh, I'll use them as an example because most people know them as, you know, our favorite limp-finned clownfish Nemo and father Marlin Ovs. Can't leave him out. So in the absence of mature female clownfish, with some extra energy expended, of course, a mature male clownfish will change sex to become a breeding female thus rendering Finding Nemo completely false. I mean, really, just do your research. Pixar, I think it was, it was Pixar, right? Fact check me. Anyway, there are numerous other examples of the complex and fascinating roles of sex in the animal kingdom. And, you know, if you're interested and you happen to be near internet access, I would say maybe check out whiptail lizards or banana slugs or fire ants, just, just to get you started, you know, just to begin your mental excavation, uh, because I'm sure that you will discover your own little rabbit hole of research and, you know, probably get flagged up on some FBI profiling thing, but hey, you know what, you know what, knowledge is power, friends, okay, so don't forget that. All right, so... I know I'm going to be backtracking on the clarification that I made in the beginning of the episode with this next little bit, but the point of me mentioning all this, the point of me mentioning the relatively unconventional sexing of species is just to highlight that in the animal kingdom, at least in my observation and in my experience, gender is not so easily defined as a small room for men and women to evacuate their bodily wastes. It's just not. We're literally the only ones to do this out of everything and anyone else all the animals on earth we are the only ones in fact even in the short time that we humans have begun to record history and form civilized societies we have had many different social views and in some cases even encouraged same-sex hip hockey as one of those views but admittedly i know you'll say these societal views were probably more prevalent before the spread of dominant monotheistic religions, and that's true, but that said, varying expressions of sexual relationships 
have been observed around the world and have shaped our history. From the ancient Greeks, who encouraged relationships between men, and more specifically, young men with older men, and, you know, as well as with women, to a more bisexual tradition uh, with roots in Buddhism, which was then adapted and tweaked a bit more for ancient Japanese culture, notably that of the samurai. You know, there's also the two spirits found in Native American cultures, and this is another example of same-sex relationships and roles. This has more emphasis on the body and the soul, which is in contrast to the often indulgent culture of the ancient Greeks. And I will just say, for those of you that don't know uh, much about the two spirits, I would definitely encourage some research on that as well, because it is fascinating, it is beautiful, and yeah, check it out. Anyway, the final example for my point, but certainly not the final example, is women-to-women marriages, or female husbands, uh, found in Kenyan culture. And this was also a common occurrence. We have all these different examples, and jumping back to our hardline conservative friends that seem to get worked up about genitalia, if one was to get worked up about any aspect of biology, I would be less worried about who's got what between their legs, and more focused on, I don't know, who's got what life-threatening genetic mutations that they're still passing on to future generations. Just a thought. You know, more resources should be dedicated to gene editing research like CRISPR, refining and editing harmful genes that carry diseases, than debating ridiculous things like this. I mean, at the end of the day, if someone's daily life has no bearing on yours, what they do doesn't hurt you at all, why poke them? Just because you think it bothers you. I mean, the irony is delicious. And I'd say, for me personally, that goes for anyone. Alright, but my rant is over, I promise. We are going to move on to our last segment for today, which is going to be dealing with the influence of environmental factors and pollutants in relation to mating and offspring. disclosure, we actually are running out of time now, so I'm going to have to breeze through this last little bit. Uh, however, I want to just emphasize before I do that, that this does not mean in any stretch of the imagination that environmental factors and impacts are any less important, and I would actually say that they are increasingly more important and relevant in this current age of human expansion. So, got that out there. Now, often, though not always, what's overlooked or disregarded by developers and businesses is the impact the environment and habitat have over sex determination. So factories, housing complexes, industrial centers, they all consume and emit a lot of energy and waste. And the waste that we produce in these areas, it eventually finds its way back into the environment. Now, I'm sure this isn't a shock to most people, especially if you've been watching Blue Planet 2, hashtag RIP Plastic Whale, 
Hashtag RIP North Atlantic right whales. Look it up. Anyway, so that waste that we produce, it eventually is usually ingested by organisms lower in the food web, but then it works its way up to the larger animals as, you know, the classic food chain thing, smaller fish eaten by a bigger fish eaten by a bigger fish. So it works its way back up the food web and then eventually back into us humans. Except the story does not end with this nice little cycle of eating trash because now we're starting to see some lasting effects in those organisms that eat our byproducts. When I was a young warthog pursuing my master's, one of the first lab experiments that we did was looking at the impacts of endocrine disruption in bivalves. I think it was clams. I, I don't remember. Now, endocrine disruption is very much what it sounds like. It's the effect certain pollutants have, you know, pollutants like pesticides, uh, some of the additives to plastics, heavy metals, etc. It's, it's the effect that they can have on the body's endocrine system. And if you don't remember what that is, it's the system that's responsible for regulating hormones in the body. It's basically those bottles under the sink that look shiny, but mom says you're not supposed to drink for safety or whatever. I don't know, I was listening. Well, most likely, those bottles and what's inside them will end up in the waterways and make contact with marine creatures. Now this is important because even though the ocean is really big and you think that it will uh, just diffuse the potency of those chemicals, they'll end up actually being ingested by these marine creatures and it will get into their systems. And eventually we found that it will affect their endocrine system in a process called endocrine disruption. So this is important because it doesn't just stop it messing around with the hormone levels in the body of this creature, but actually it can also mimic other hormones, potentially causing imbalances or even blocking pathways and hormone receptors, which can lead to tumors or interfering with development or other various things that don't sound very good. Anyway, so on, on my course, we were doing this dissection and we were analyzing this species of bivalve. Again, I don't remember, I think it was a clam. Uh, and this bivalve had been exposed to an endocrine disrupting chemical. The purpose of the lab was to distinguish bivalves between male, female, and intersex. The intersex were the ones that were males that happened to be developing physiological female characteristics. And if I remember correctly, we found several males had started developing eggs in their gonads. Now, this is not exclusive to bivalves. Endocrine disruption has been observed in countless other organisms, from fish to birds to dogs and cats and many more. And the point of all of it is that we really need to start being a bit more conscious of what we're putting into the environment. And, and not just with the willy-nilly bit, but actually reducing our consumption. With the stresses of climate change already rearing its head on numerous ecosystems, we really don't need to add any extra pressure to struggling animals and systems by further impacting their mating populations. I mean, you're really just breaking both their legs when you do that. Now, endocrine disruption is just one example of how damage to the environment can affect sex, reproduction, and mating. But there are other contributing factors for successful mating that hinge on having an unadulterated environment. 
One example that comes to mind is that of site fidelity. This is when an animal remains or returns to an area repeatedly, either for migration or mating or birthing purposes. And again, this goes back to the sensitivity that building developments or complexes, other structures can have in places that are intrinsically linked with certain animal behaviors. For some creatures, the specific time and place can play a crucial role in sexual selection. Take, for example, the majestic salmon. <clears throat> now, the salmon makes the infamous perilous trek upstream to breed in the same place where they too were spawned just years before. But it's not just location that impacts reproduction. It can also be factors like the weather. Take for example some species of fungi which can be particularly sensitive to temperature. In fact, so much so that the temperature can dictate whether they re reproduce asexually or sexually. Species of fungi such as Asparagillus fumigatus and Asparagillus nudulans, and again, apologies for the pronunciation, but these two species are dependent on a certain temperature range to kickstart their sexual cycle, and if they're not in that range, it's bad news bears. Plants, birds, and other animals have all experienced changes in their behavior, and in our case, sexual behavior, due in part to relatively abnormal weather. Now one last quick bit is about litter and noise pollution in the environment and how both can influence mating and reproduction. And I'm going to make this brief, so this is going to be more on you listeners to, to Google this afterwards, but let's say, hypothetically, a population of mature breeding seabirds begins to die from ingesting too much plastic waste. That is the thing, seabirds have been dying from ingesting too much plastic. Anyway, the mating choices in that population become limited, potentially leading to interbreeding, site relocation, or a local population crash, among other things. Now another hypothetical, and this one regarding noise pollution, could be with an inherently loud place, like a city, or the things that come out of my mouth and we'll go with the city for this case, let's just say that this metropolis happens to be expanding into an area that is known to be a location for mating of certain animals. The increased noise levels could potentially scare off those animals or shorten the intervals of mating. And again, this could possibly lead to site relocation, reducing the reproductive success, and or any other number of outcomes. At the end of the day, everything we do impacts the environment around us. For the most part, we humans love our privacy, especially when it comes to sex. Over the thousands of years that our larger brains have afforded us dominion over other animals, and other humans for that matter, we have foregone the responsibility of caretaker and consumed the environment for our needs, not survival, at the expense of the very ecosystems that nurtured our beginnings. After watching and reflecting on Sir David Attenborough's gentle plea for conservation in Blue Planet 2, the move to give nature back private spaces is increasingly crucial. And though conservation of all ecosystems on Earth is important, 
The gap in our connection to the ocean is greater to that of the one on land. Hence my extra emphasis on marine conservation, because, as the brilliant Dr. Sylvia Earle once said, no water, no life, no blue, no green. I'd like to conclude today's episode by reading what I think is a fitting passage from the book Shantaram by Gregory David Roberts. And thank you, Roe, for recommending it, by the way. Shout out. So, in the scene, the protagonist, Lynn, is having a conversation with a couple of endearing and philosophical junkies named Scorpio George and Gemini George. And they're talking about what motivates people, which again is why I thought I would tie it in, because they talk about mating motivations as well. We're having this discussion about what it is that motivates people. I give you fair warning, Lynn, Gemini said, sighing mightily. We've been having this discussion for two weeks, and Scorpio still won't see reason. As I said, we're having this discussion about what it is that motivates people, Scorpio George pressed on, his Canadian accent and professional manner combining in the documentary voiceover style that most irritated his English friend. You see, Freud said, we're motivated by the drive for sex. Adler disagreed and said that it was the drive for power. Then Viktor Frankl, he said, sex and power were important drivers. But when you can't get either one, no sex and no power, there's still something else that drives us on and keeps us going. Yes, 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 the drive for meaning, Gemini added, which is really just the same thing in different words. We have a drive for power because power gives us sex, and we have the drive for meaning because that helps us to understand sex. It all comes down to sex in the end, no matter what you call it. Those other ideas, they're just the clothes. Like, when when you get the clothes off, it's, it's all about sex, isn't it? No, you're wrong, Scorpio contradicted him. We're all driven by a desire to find meaning in life. We have to know what it's all about. If it was just sex or power, we'd still be chimpanzees. It's meaning that makes us human beings. It's sex that makes us human beings, Scorpio, Gemini put in, his wicked leer working even harder. But it's been so long, you've probably forgotten that. And with that... We conclude this week's episode, and actually, this series on mating. Now, even though it's awesome that you're listening to this podcast, I do think it's important that everyone does their own research. You know, keep the knowledge flow going. So, if you want a little help, head on over to https colon forward slash slash theimposterpodcast.wordpress.com because you will find on our blog that we have all the sources that we used for this episode. So if you want to check out the references that I used or you just want to do some of your own research and don't know where to start, check out the blog. But as always, thanks for listening. Now on a, on a separate quick side note, I've gotten some questions recently on how you can support this podcast. And the best way, honestly, is just to share and to like us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, SoundCloud, Twitter, YouTube, comic books, magazines, television, blimps, you name it, we're there. That's how we roll. We can do everything. Cars, beards, billboards, it doesn't matter. We're there.
got a little carried away there. We're actually not on the majority of those things, but, you know, social media, definitely. So, like and share us. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Happy sciencing. Happy researching. Happy days. And, um, live long and prosper.